Welcome. If you're a woman who has a sense that there's more out there for you, you're in the right place. I'm Whitney Baker, host of the Electric Ideas podcast. Somewhere along the line of working kids, life carried on, but I lost track of my truth. I'm on a reflective journey, and that's what this podcast is all about. Each week, I interview a woman who is lighting her own path and offering others hope. Before our conversation ends, we'll share a reflective question for you to explore. Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. Today, I am chatting about a book called Sacred Rest, Recover Your Life, Renew Your Energy, Restore Your Sanity, which was written by Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith. And Dr. Dalton-Smith is both an internal medicine physician, speaker, and award-winning author. She's been featured on tons of thought leader platforms like Prevention, MSNBC, Women's Day, Fox, and the list goes on. As I was reading about the various types of sacred rest that are discussed in this book, one of the things that really compelled me was Dr. Dalton Smith's ability to take her practical knowledge as a practicing physician and overlap it with her deeply felt spiritual beliefs, which in the today's day and age, I feel like a lot of physicians aren't willing to be overt about any spiritual practices. So I thought the intersection made this book unique. I know this is going to be an episode where people have some great insight. So let's get started. Hi, Dr. Dalton Smith. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I loved reading Sacred Rest, and I can't wait to get into all of it because I know my listeners are going to learn so much from this conversation. So before we delve into the specifics of your books, I just wanted to start with a quick distinguishment because many people think of rest as and sleep as one of the same, but they're not. So let's just start by filling in what is sacred rest. Yeah. So when I think about rest, I think oftentimes we think about rest as cessation activities when we stop. And so we think about the ultimate stop is sleeping. But I really look at rest as those restorative activities, those things we do to pour back in and to fill ourselves back up. And sometimes that's not stopping, but that's actually doing something that has a positive benefit and that kind of gets us back to that healthy place. And so unfortunately, because so many of us have looked at sleep and rest as the same thing, if we're not feeling better after sleeping, we feel like rest doesn't work. We feel like, now what do I do? There's a very hopeless situation when the one thing you think is supposed to make you feel energized and renewed isn't doing that. And I think that's the problem. We're spending so much time focusing on sleep, which is only one of the different types of rest I talk about in sacred rest, when there are seven total areas that we need to address. So you're only getting one out of the seven. I want to share a passage from your book. And here it is. Our 21st century lives reek of exhaustion. We now live longer than our ancestors, but we spend less time living life and more time fighting death. One of the things that really stood out to me in your book, because you interweave patient examples with the types of rest, how many people come to you just almost wanting you to tell them something is wrong and give a silver bullet? Why are so many people exhausted in our current society? Because we refuse to accept the solution. We want a quick solution for a 
problem that requires a slower response. And so we we want that immediate, let me just take the pill, tell me my thyroid's wrong, give me the pill, let my, you know, let me feel energized immediately. Uh, or we, we've gotten used to our quick fixes like caffeine or sugar or what, whatever our vice is that we run to whenever we need to rev up or, you know, alcohol or whatever, when we need to rev down, but we don't really want to do any of the lifestyle changes or even do the self-reflection and self-awareness necessary to be able to be aware of which type of exhaustion, which type of rest we're needing. You know, what kind of tired are you? We don't want to have to do those assessments. We want something quicker and we want it to be immediate and we want it to be a a kind of one-time solution. And really when you develop rest deficits, there's an ongoing process of awareness and response. And so you have to really accept that responsibility of it's my job to be aware of where I'm becoming depleted and it's my choice in how I respond to it. You said in there, what kind of tired are you? And I found this just so compelling because I, I've always believed that rest is important, but I hadn't thought about it in the seven (laughs) different areas. So I'm going to quickly list out the seven type of rests that you talk about in your book so that people can start getting a feel (laughs) for their type of rest deficit they might be seeing. And then we can drop into each area a little bit. So for the listeners, the seven type of rests that are discussed in sacred rest are physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, social, sensory, and creative. And we're going to spend a little time in each area, but we're going to start with one that maybe seems really the most obvious, but people might need to think about differently, and that's physical rest. So tell us what are some signs that you have a physical rest deficit? Yeah, so, well, physical rest has two components to it. It has the passive component, which are the sleeping and the napping that we're all familiar with. Then it also has an active component, which are those things that affect our circulation, our muscle integrity, our flexibility, and all strength, all of those types of things. And so some signs that you could have a physical rest deficit could include things like back pain. It can include feeling tired, but it's the type of tired where like your muscles are achy and your body's sore, the tire that comes from use, body use and physical use and fatigue from that. It can include things like headaches. It can include things like palpitations. There's a lot of ways our body physiologically responds to stress. And and those types of symptoms are some of the things that we relate to when we talk about physical rest deficits. I know that a lot of your patients give you the, I don't have time, excuse. (laughs) And what is a quick practice within the physical rest area that you feel like maybe we could try to integrate without having to take an hour out of our morning that women can integrate into their everyday lives that you recommend? Yeah. So it it really depends on your job and kind of what you're doing and how your body's used within your work. But just a, a couple of simple things. But one way of experiencing physical rest is walking because many of us, our jobs are fairly sedentary. So we're not getting good circulation throughout the day. So you're not walking to click off your Fitbit. You know, I'm not talking about fitness exercise walking. I mean, walking for restoration where you're just trying to get your circulation pumped back up and throughout your body. 
drinking adequate amounts of water. Most people are chronically dehydrated. And so, you know, if you're sitting there and your mouth feels dry right now, even as you're listening, chances are you're already dehydrated. And so increasing your fluid intake so that your body actually can circulate the nutrients at an adequate level. And then the final one I would say is being aware of the quality of your sleep. You know, sleep and rest are not the same thing, but I'm not saying sleep is not important. Sleep is vitally important to your body. You can't survive without it. So you need to be aware of the quality of your sleep, not only the quantity, because there are days when I, whatever my schedule might be going on back when I was on call a lot, you know, I may only get five hours of sleep, but if I can get high quality sleep within those five hours, I still feel better than those days that I do a sleep marathon and get 10 hours of poor quality sleep. So be aware of some of these different areas. Oh, and a final one I'll throw in there since so many people are working from home now is the body ergonomics of your workstation. That's another type of physical rest is being aware of the body ergonomics is your screen at eye level. So you're not hurting and damaging your, your cervical spine because you're looking up or looking down inappropriately. Is your wrist at a level with your keyboard where you're not creating more problems like carpal tunnel? If you're short like I am and you're under 5'4", sorry, if you're under 5'4", I can, we're shorter than the rest of the world is the reality of it. You, the chair you're probably sitting in is not built for you. It's built for people 5'5 five, five and taller unless you have specifically ordered a chair for smaller people. In that case, the bottom of the chair is likely pushing up against the back of your legs. So if you're getting spider veins and varicose veins for the ladies out there or ankle swelling, putting just a little stool under your desk that elevates your feet to take the pressure off from under your thighs can be a simple rest strategy to alleviate that rest deficit. So we're not talking about things you always have to create time for. Sometimes it's being aware of the things you can do to have an ongoing restorative process built into your workday. I love how you said that because a lot of your book just is such an invitation to weave practices into our everyday lives. So it doesn't become another thing to do for busy women. Speaking of busy women, (laughs) tell us about mental rest deficit. How do we recognize that? If you have a mental rest deficit, you probably associate with you, you are ready to go to bed, you're exhausted, you lay down at night and your brain won't shut up. You're thinking all the thoughts, you're processing, you're thinking of conversations you had, you're thinking about how you wish you'd said stuff differently during the conversation. You're having a hard time concentrating even when during your day because your mind wants to wander and can't seem to focus on a, a certain thought or stay concentrated. Those are all signs of a mental rest deficit. It's just, it's the busy brain syndrome. So one of the tips you provided in your book to help clear kind of mental fog and be proactive about our mental rest deficit was time blocking low yield activities, which I'm a huge fan of, and it's been transformational for me. Can you explain this? Yeah, there are some things you have to do that chances are you're going in and out of them throughout the day. I'll give you an example, like email. Most of us, the way we approach our email inboxes is 20 times throughout the day. We'll go in and out and in and out. And you're usually doing that in between doing other things. So it's a form of multitasking. Your brain is having to jump from, I'm doing this work. Oh, I saw a ping on my computer. And now I'm going to jump over here and see who pinged me and what they want in this email. So you're, you're consistently changing 
tabs on your computer, but you're also changing tabs within your headspace. And your brain has to refocus every time it does that. And it takes longer and longer to really go deep into the thought process when you jump around like that. And so with time blocking, rather than having the stuff kind of spread out, you pick a time that you're going to go focus, you're going to go deeper into that one work that you're doing. And then you don't go back into that till your next time block. For myself, email is something that consistently causes me to be stressed if I jump in and out like that. And it's a big part of my work because there's always a lot of collaboration and things that we're doing. So what I do is I have a long time block in the morning, usually like an hour to 90 minutes of time where I'm sitting down and I'm answering as many of those emails and doing all the things and all the stuff. Then I come out of it for a season and I stay out of it till like maybe two o'clock. And so then I might jump in for just 30 minutes, just enough to make sure nobody answered back or, or whatever. And then I may not look at it again until like five, right as I'm about to leave, just kind of a 10 minute overview. Let me make sure there's no fires to be put out before I shut this thing down and go, and go enjoy the rest of my day. But by doing that, I'm not having that multitasking brain going in and out, in and out. And I've allowed it to kind of focus my attention during the times that I'm actually doing that. Email can be such a beast. And I really appreciate your specificity with how you approach that because I think it will serve a lot of people to try that on for size. Moving on to emotional rest. When you talked about emotional rest in your book, one of the things that you said that just felt really soulful to me was it's when you no longer feel the need to perform. Tell us more about that. Yeah, social rest boils down to really feeling open to be authentic and just very real and raw about what you're feeling and what you're dealing with and where you're at. And so it's being able to express yourself. And I find that people who have an emotional rest deficit oftentimes are the same people who are a bit of a, a people pleaser. And I, I say this with all love because I'm, I'm one of you. You know, that that's kind of what my thing was. I don't like confrontation. I don't like having to explain myself to people. So if somebody would say something along the lines of, hey, would you like to help out with this volunteer thing at my kid's school? I'd be like, sure. And and I'm saying it because it's like, I don't want to have to explain to you why I really don't want to do this. You know, <laughs> I don't want to have to go into those depths. What happens with that is you start feeling, first of all, like your feelings, your wishes, your desires don't matter. Whether you voice it or not, that's what you're feeling. You're like their wishes and their desires really account for more than my wishes and my desires. So I'm going to yield my desires to this person's desires. And it starts getting into this toxic type relationship where you are less likely to be authentic in that relationship because the relationship is being built on falsities. It's not being built on who you truly are. And so there's a lot of relationships I feel that people have built where they don't feel safe to be honest about what they're feeling. They say yes to things out of guilt, fear, or shame, rather than giving a truthful no that comes from a pure place, from a truthful place. This resonated with me and something I'm paraphrasing here, but it was a permission. And I'd like to share something you wrote in there was kind of the fact that a sincere, truthful no is better than a bitter yes, something to that effect. 
Yeah, a truthful no is better than a reluctant yes, uh, simply because, you know, that reluctant yes is coming from an unpure place. So even though you said yes, and, and I'll give an example, because I did this for years before I finally kind of got the courage to honor my own no. And so they would ask me to do something like, go, oh, let's, can you help out at the school, whatever it is. I would show up at the school thing event with the worst attitude ever. There's a smile on my face, but nothing is smiling in my heart. (laughs) So so I'm there physically, but I'm not in a good headspace the whole time. I'm like, probably where you got the bitter part. I'm upset. I'm bitter. I'm not happy. I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm just going through the motions, feeling like a zombie kind of placed in this situation. And the, and the whole time I'm thinking, I should have just told them, no, I, I don't like doing this kind of stuff. This is not who I am. This doesn't align with my gifts, talents, or personality. I don't, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. I definitely giggled and I was like, oh, been there when you, you wrote about how you were building a volcano or something oh. like that. And you're like, oh my God, this is so <laughs> not <least> crafty <laughs> person in the parent pool, <laughs> but the one they knew would say yes. So. So let's move on to spiritual rest. I loved your perspective in this section about how faith and science work together. And just to take a step back in the book, there's a section that kind of shows the latest research. And I appreciate that. It's very grounded. You're in the medical field, but also you are bold and unapologetic about how faith is central to your life. And it's Mm -hmm. part of the book. So can you share with us your perspective about how faith and science work together based on what the research shows? Yeah, I think the research really is amazing. I live near Birmingham, Alabama, where the university there has a huge research facility where they, this is part of what they focus on is how faith affects science and the body and how certain people with certain faith beliefs are noticing greater levels of of quicker healing and response to different things. So it's, it's really interesting to see how this research has developed. And I'll, I'll be honest, you know, when you're writing a book like this and, and you are as bold as I am about what I believe, you know, in the, the emotional rest section, I even talk about this. I'm like, it would be inauthentic of me to write this book and not share what was such a big part of this journey for me. And so it's, you know, when I'm talking to people, I'm, I'm fully aware that everybody doesn't have the same faith beliefs. And that's why I divided the book up so that the second half of the book is very heavy on my faith aspect of it. The beginning of the book, I have people from atheists to Buddhist to Hindu, to, you know, you, you name it, every faith has read it because I get the comments and the feedback. But what what I find very interesting is that that first half of the book, regardless of faith beliefs, even people who have no faith belief come back to me and say, I find this very beneficial because even though I don't believe in spirituality in the way that you do, I can understand the spiritual rest deficit because at the very core of it is the need we all have to feel like we belong to feel like our life has meaning and purpose. So that transcends all of the other nuances of how we look at that. And it's really just kind of getting back to the core of recognizing that this is a part of us, regardless of what we call it, regardless of where we're at in that journey for ourselves. 
I completely felt that in the book. And you even talked openly about how your mother died in childbirth and how for a long time that put up walls between you and your version of God. And like you said, regardless of where listeners are on the religious or spiritual spectrum, I think everyone would like to hear how you counsel patients because you've gone through this yourself too. When someone faces a life altering loss or diagnosis and just cannot make sense of it and are in that place of just spiritual lack of trust and disbelief, what's the thread? Yeah, I think it's the the humanity part of it. One of the examples I give within the book is a young woman when I was, you know, very early on in my medical career in residency, actually, who was in the emergency room for cutting. And so this was back when this was extremely popular choice for people who were trying to express themselves or to feel something and didn't know how to process their own pain. And so cutting was a way of controlled pain. And so I was kind of in that situation with this person who had cut herself um, in an attempt to, in this example, to end her life. And, and, and the moment I'm sitting there and I'm suturing up and, you know, we're, the way it works is they go through the emergency room, they go through the internist, which is what I am, internal medicine physician for like clearance before they go to the psychiatric doctors to do the mental health part of it. So she's in my presence kind of transitionally before she goes to her next stage and she hasn't had any talks with anyone. She, you know, she's raw at this point, so to speak, raw and bleeding literally at this point. And so I'm suturing up this wound and the whole time I'm suturing up this wound, a part of me felt a sisterhood with her. And it's like, I've never tried to do anything that she was doing, but I understand deep pain where you just want to feel something, you just want some level of control because you feel like it's all so out of control. And I think that's what we have to understand. Can we, we don't have to necessarily be in exact same situations, but there are people that, that come into our lives who we have walked similar journeys because we understand similar pain. And that pain, that connection point can be a place where we then grow together. We love each other deeper. We, we, open ourselves up for conversations that maybe we would not have had with somebody else. Yes. I share your practice of choosing a word to kind of color and filter my year or just be intentional about. I know that yours recently was surrender. What have you learned about surrendering? Oh, yeah, that was from Let's see, the book came out a while ago and that was a word before the book came out. So yeah, uh, thank God I've got better words. <laughs> I was like, that's a big oh, one for a whole year. year. But yeah, that, that was a year really of, of learning to let go, of learning how to not hold on to things so tightly, to hold everything loosely and to to stay in a position of, of flow is, is the kind of the feeling that I got from that, to stay in a place of just freedom and flow. And so it's it's not a word I would like to revisit <laughs> ever again, because there's this kind of pulling out of your hands at first because you don't want to let go. You know, one of the statements that I that I sometimes hear in Christianity is let go and let God. And I hate that statement. When I say I hate that statement, I mean, I literally hate that statement, because when you think about it, most of the things that are important to us, we don't want to let go of. 
we want to hold on to for dear life. And it's like, if God wants it, he better pry it straight up out of our hands <laughs> to get it. And so, uh, you know, for me, that's kind of what that process felt like. It was, it was trying to get me to do something that at my very core, I could not even comprehend the process of. And so I had to learn kind of a new definition of what surrender looks like. And for me, that was that new definition, being able to flow in the moment. Yeah, what came up for me is I I always think of the word in my teachings as inspired, is literally in spirit. And when you're feeling and trusting that and surrendering to that, it can be very, uh, very formative. So that was really, really great to read about. In the category of social rest, just to pivot, I feel like we could talk about any of these rest categories for an entire episode, but I really want everyone to have a chance to see, because it felt really expansive to be like, wow, I totally hadn't even thought about that. And there's so many things I could try that might be super healing for me in any of these categories. So I just want to make sure we have time to get to them all. And in the category of social rest, here's something you said. Social rest is how we practice the give and take of authentically vulnerable relationships. What do you mean by this? Yeah, that's it. Social rest, as you can see, actually ties very closely with emotional rest because they both deal with people and kind of how we allow ourselves to be expressed and engaged with people. But social rest is specifically evaluating how we receive energy from others and give energy. So within every relationship, you're either mostly giving, people are negatively pulling from your social energy, or that relationship is life-giving and they're pouring back into you. Now, there's some relationships that can be both. You know, a lot of relationships are both to some degree, but some are very seriously one-sided. For example, if you're a coach and you have clients, if you are someone who's doing like customer service or like a physician or service provider of any sort, all of those people that are coming to you are coming to take something from you. They're not coming to give you anything socially. They are coming to receive. And so this is a place where you can become depleted. But the problem is oftentimes in our other relationships, like even if you're a parent, your kids could be both, but typically we don't allow them space to be social rest for us. We just let them take, 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 take. <laughs> and even our spouses sometimes without opening ourselves up to receive. And so to be able to receive, sometimes we have to really get transparent about our need for social rest. You know, if your spouse is one who's just kind of gotten in the habit of you doing all the heavy lifting with the emotional aspect of your relationship, you're going to need to be transparent about that and say, you know, I really would like to just have a conversation where we we talk about our day, where I can share what my day has done to me emotionally, not trauma depth, not where you're going through this person said this and this person said that, because that's not emotional rest, but to be actually able to say, this is what I felt during those moments. You know, my boss yelled at me. You don't give the details of the yelling at, you give the details of what it did inside of you. This made me feel inferior, you know, and you let that person in so that they can see what you're walking through. They can then be social rest to you by edifying you, building up your confidence, motivating you. But that transparency has to occur for them to even know the places that need life spoken over you. Yes, I'll give you an example from my personal life too, because I feel like it may resonate with the listeners. 
sometimes, especially in, in full seasons for my husband, you know, we do, we both do the work, do the kids, get everything down. And he would just want to be like, you want to watch a show tonight? And I'm, I don't even really like TV, but once in a while, I'm just like, oh, okay, if that's what sounds relaxing to him. But sometimes I'm just like, no, I want to like just relax and to have a conversation and talk. And that feels better for me. Watching a show is not rest for me and it isn't social rest, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does that make and, sense? You know, that's interesting. A lot of people do that. And not to say this is what your husband's doing, but I'll just mention it. Because watching TV can be a form of creative rest for some people. We'll get to that. But, you know, if, if that inspires them or motivates them seeing something, you know, uh, certain shows. So that can be creative rest. But I find for a lot of people watching TV or playing video games and doing those kind of things are actually escapism. Hmm. It's like, let me escape the moments for them so I don't have to even think about it. So rather than actually it allowing them to be restful or restored in any way, it's, it's another form of cessation. It's a form of life cessation. I'm just going to stop life for a moment and do something else that has nothing to do with my life. And then I'm just going to jump back into the same fatigue that I left when I you know, did that activity. That makes so much sense. I'm really glad I brought that up. And it actually ties perfectly into something else that I wanted to talk with you about regarding social media. Because there's some parallels in what we were just talking about. And regarding social media, in the area of social rest, you said, we are not designed to bring all these people into our home daily and interact with their every moments. We are designed to have an inner circle of relationships from which all other social interactions flow. The social overload is damaging. I think that people need to hear this. So tell us about this more. Yeah, social media. I don't have a thing against social media. I think social media has lots of positive and lots of benefits when used with a bit of self-awareness to how you respond to social media. So, for example, if you're someone who is very empathic, which I am, if I'm on social media and I'm spending 10 minutes and every feed that pops up is telling me this person died and that person got in a car accident, this, this, this happened. I'm going to leave those social media moments feeling worse emotionally (laughs) than I did when I hopped on. And so there's no way that that is helping any type of restorative process. It's further depleting me. However, if I have curated my feed and changed things around in such a way that the majority of the posts that pop up are things that inspire me, are things that uplift me. You know, AI right now is so hypersensitive. If you like only the things that are uplifting, you will only see the things that are uplifting. So, you know, I know it's it's tempting to put that little care, you know, icon up there. Sometimes I care, you know, yes, I care that you're hurting. You know, sometimes it's actually better not to do that so that you're not curating a feed of negativity. So that's just an aside, but but I think we need to be aware that you want your social media feed to actually allow you to be able to interact with people in a positive way. You don't always want to see the negative. You have to have some balance there so that when you go on, you are leaving those moments feeling as if they benefited you and didn't hurt you in some way. You nailed it. I'm on the exact same page. I think it's kind of TV and social media 
I'm for whatever feels good, but it has to feel good afterwards. Otherwise, I think you need to be really mindful of what you're doing on there or what you're following or what you're listening to or watching. And it's individual, right? It's not Mm -hmm. right or wrong in my book. It's just how does it make you feel? And if somebody or something online repeatedly (laughs) doesn't make you feel good, then don't follow them. It's really simple sometimes, right? (laughs) Absolutely. And you know, this ties over into sensory rest, which we're probably about to go to. But, you know, with sensory rest specifically, social media is one of the things that I recommend on your phone to turn the notifications off. There is never a time that you need to get an emergent response notification on social media. I don't care what you tell me, because if your child's school needed to get you emergently, they are not going to drop a message in your DMs. They're going to call you on the phone like normal people do who have a true emergency, or they may text you, both of which the notifications would be on for, and you would get them. So the only reason social media, when we, when we need to go into it, we should really choose. It should not have the ability to push us stress at its will. You know, whenever it wants to send you a notification, it's going to push you a dose of stress and you just got to bow down to it, right? No, that should not be how it functions. We should be able to have control on when we engage with. So keep the app on your phone, keep it so you can engage whenever you want but turn the notifications off so that you take back control and you can choose when you want to go into that app and look at whatever that is. That's helpful. And yes, we've moved exactly, like you said, right into sensory rest. So how do we know if we have a sensory rest deficit? Well, it starts with looking at your kind of sensory environment, the sensory inputs within your environment. Some environments are more sensory rich than others. What are the lights, sounds, smells, things that are happening around where you do most of your work? Are there kids playing in the background because you work at home? So you're hearing, you know, toys going off and all kinds of stuff. Are you working in a near an elevator where you're hearing dinging or phones ringing all day? Are you on the computer where you're around bright lights and you know, screens and all of that all day long, take an evaluation of how much sensory input, how sensory rich your day is, and then evaluate how you feel as the day progresses. People with a sensory rest deficit or who experience episodes of sensory overload tend to have an agitation, irritation, rage, or anger problem as their time in that sensory rich environment progresses. So if you start noticing that You start off the day pretty good. Toward the end of the day, you're screaming at kids and you're, you know, short tempered with customers or whatever that is. You may be experiencing some sensory overload symptoms and need to evaluate what are some ways to downgrade my sensory input, whether that be, you know, on your drive home from work, you don't turn on the radio, you drive home in silence so that you can have a moment of reprieve. Or it might be if you're working from home and, you know, the kids are always playing or doing homeschool or whatever it is, you take 30 minutes where you put noise cancellation earphones on for a second just to block out the noise and get a little bit of reprieve. Or you close your eyes for five minutes in between those Zoom meetings that you're doing back to back so that you're not having the visual input consistently. There's a lot of different ways to kind of have small levels of sensory deprivation but those are like, it's almost like the reboot on your computer. It gives your, your, your nervous system a bit of a reprieve from just all of the sensory input. Yes. And I've had a few people in my community bring up the idea because I'm with you on the walks and how restorative they can be. And even challenging yourself. I, I love music. I love learning. I love books. 
I listen to all kinds of things, but sometimes I'm like, I'm just going to walk in silence. And that can be a really good sensory reset for me, especially if it's a day where I've had a lot of screen time or noise or kids, whatever. (laughs) So just wanted to share that. Okay. Last but not least, we've got creative rest deficit. And I want to read a final passage because it's quite lovely. It says, I've trampled over many petals on my way to the life I thought I wanted. I pushed past the smiles of people I love. I ran hard in the direction of my goals. It was a time of great productivity, but lacked satisfaction. What do you now know about creative rest that you wish you would have known sooner? I wish I had known first that it existed. Creative rest was one where I felt like was more of a spiritual experience, although it was a natural phenomenon. I think all of us have had that time when you were in nature, whether it's at the beach or you're you're standing looking over like a gorge or, or something. And you're just like, wow, this is inspiring. This is beautiful. <laughs> and you feel restored kind of in your mind, body and spirit just by being in that outside setting. And so for me, it's always been the ocean. And I knew it was not just in my head. There was a tangible release of peace that I felt and rejuvenation in these settings. But I I couldn't understand really the specifics of that. And so the more I started researching creative rest and what that is and what that looks like, and even coming up with a term for what, what it is, what I found was that for most of us, creative rest is simply the rest we experience when we allow ourselves to appreciate beauty and let it awaken creativity inside of us. And so whether that's natural beauty, like the mountains, trees, and ocean, or man-made beauty like art and music and dance, we need to be aware that we are using creative energy throughout our day, through problem solving, through innovation. Anytime we're thinking outside of the box or trying to fix a problem, we're using creative energy. And if we're using energy in an area, then it can be depleted. And if it can be depleted, then it can become exhausted. And if it can become exhausted, then you're going to feel tired and drained. And so for years, I functioned with very low levels of creative energy. I feel simply because I didn't even know it was a place I needed to restore. So I'd I'd say, I'm so tired and I try to get more sleep. I'm so tired and I go do yoga. I'm so tired and I try to do mindfulness. And I was doing all of these other restful, restorative processes, but I wasn't doing the restorative process in the area of the deficiency. Mm -hmm. And so I continue to stay in that place where I felt tired and it and it took a long time to really understand that that is what it was because as a physician every patient is requiring me to use creative energy I have to take symptoms I have to take knowledge I have to mix them all up determine a diagnosis figure out a treatment there's an ongoing process of innovation with each person's individual healthcare plan and that place was getting consistently depleted every hour of every day with no resource or even no strategy for how to replete it. Yes. What came to me too, it was almost like a distinguishment that clicked in my mind when I was reading your words in this section is just putting yourself in a place where you can feel wonder and awe. And that might even be sitting in your own garden. Mm -hmm. In one distinguishment, because I'm a creative person, I, I, I'm a writer. And I think one quick distinguishment I want to make is 
a lot of people confuse creative rest, what you're talking about, with creative output. And that seems to be not what we're going for. Can you, can you clarify for us here just so people know what we're after? <laughs> yeah. When I first started discussing creative rest with patients and, and kind of getting a feel for where it fit into this paradigm, people would say, Oh, do you mean when I go to that, my girls retreat and we have like, we have wine and art and we, we paint or we go and we do pottery together. And I'm like, no, cause that's still putting a demand on your creativity. That is still forcing you to create and produce. And rest is not about producing. It's about receiving. And so what what this would look like is going to an art museum where you're sipping wine and appreciating what's already been produced or going outside and you're sitting at a garden, a botanical garden, and you're appreciating the natural beauty that's already been created. So you're not having to put a demand on your own creativity you are taking a moment to appreciate what's already created. Beautiful. We are up against time, but I always end my conversations in the same way. I want to ask you, what's one question women should be asking themselves more? I would say the one question women should be asking themselves is what kind of tired am I? Saying I'm so tired is such a pointless statement. It would be like coming to my emergency room and saying, hey, doc, I hurt. I would be like, and what am I supposed to do with that? Where do you hurt? How long has it been hurting? Help me figure out how to even direct you along the path to healing. And so when you say I'm so tired, identify what kind of tired you are. And that's really where my rest quiz comes from. The, The rest deficit assessment is based on this concept of identifying the rest deficit So you're not trying to fix all of the seven at the same time, but you can focus your attention on the one or two places where you truly have a deficiency that's affecting your life. And that's at restquiz.com. It's a fun resource. I'll make sure to share it. I'll make sure to capture it in the show notes. I did it myself. I sent it to my husband. I sent it to my son. And it's also, I think, a fun conversation to have with the ones that you love because you know, it it helps you show up for yourself and maybe be compassionate and thoughtful about what your loved ones need as well. So we'll make sure to capture that. Where can we follow you to learn more about sacred rest? Yeah, my main website is at ichoosemybestlife.com. And so from there, you can access the quiz, you can learn about the book, and the book's available everywhere. Wonderful. Dr. Dalton Smith, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at at WhitneyWoman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.